Hello, and welcome to the Uncover Up. This episode is part of an accidental series we did on the witch hunts of the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. I say accidental because it was just supposed to be one episode specifically on the Salem witch trials of the late 17th century. However, as often happens, we realized we couldn't tell that story properly without an episode on witches in general, and witch hunts in particular. Then we started recording, and realized that we actually needed to do three episodes on witches and witch trials. This is the second episode, and on it we focus on the way that the idea of the witch started to form in Europe in the 15th century. While there were many different opinions at the time, including many people who thought that witchcraft wasn't even real, there was one book in particular that turned out to be extremely influential. Unfortunately, as we'll see in this episode, it was also extremely flawed, and those flaws resulted in a lot of innocent people getting murdered. So, as we join the conversation on the other side of the theme song, Lee and I will discuss the books and pamphlets that started the ball rolling on the creation of the witch in Europe in the modern era. This is all a test. So starting in the 15th century, we start to see this massive body of literature about witches and witchcraft, I think in part as a reaction to the fact that when you went out into the towns, it was just a free-for-all. Like, yeah. you, you did not have a unified one body of belief amongst the, the people even of a single town. No. And so there was titles like A Brief Work on Witches, The Lash Against Those Who Commit a Maleficia, the Investigation of Witches, a Treatise Concerning Women Who Prophecy. And all of these were works that tried to prove, using scripture and official church doctrine for the most part, that witches existed and were a threat. However, there were also some works published at the same time that argued against the existence of witchcraft and against the need to prosecute witches. I'm about to massacre my own uh, <laughs> Italian name now. In 1520, Pietro Pomposazzi. Yeah, it's still better than my attempt. Produced... On the causes of natural effects or of incantations, who and he argued that those effects that were treated as examples of demonic agencies could be explained using natural causes. There was an Italian lawyer, Andrea Alciati, uh, who was asked in 1538 what his opinion was regarding the burning of witches. And he said that witches shouldn't be purged with fire, but instead with hellebore. What is hellebore? It was an herb that was used at the time to treat insanity. Oh, okay. So basically what he's saying is, no, that we don't treat them with, we don't need to treat them with fire. We could treat them with medicine and like mental health. Yeah. So there are, this is often um, surprises me as well, that there are examples, quite early examples of debunking superstitions and not being taken in by this. I mean, in a way, I think anybody in the Middle Ages and before must be deeply superstitious and have no sense of reason but again, you go to Augustine, and who is writing, well, I have to look that up again. He's writing in the 5th century, 6th century, somewhere around there. 5th century, I'm pretty sure. And he really has a whole rant against astrology. And, and he gives like 10 reasons why it's, it's a bogus idea. And that's in the 5th century, you know. And, and so, again, it's, it's, I think, a modern misconception that it's the Enlightenment and modernity that brings the end of superstition. It doesn't. In, in modern times, we're still very superstitious, but there were also attempts at not being superstitious in ancient times. And one of the most 
uh, influential of the witch skeptics was uh, an English theorist from the late uh, 16th century named Reginald Scott, who argued that so-called witches were actually victims of ignorance and legal barbarism, or they were led astray by illness or senility, or by their Catholicism. (laughs) And that is going to require some explanation. Why was he taking a shot at the Catholics? So what was the date again? 1580. 1580. So we have now entered into the Protestant Reformation, and this happens after Martin Luther, who is a professor of theology and a devout Catholic, takes issue doctrinally with some core ideas in Christianity. What Martin Luther is uh, worried about is whether the Catholic interpretation of doctrine is correct. If it isn't correct, then everybody who follows Catholicism is actually doomed to hell. So, you know, again, this, this kind of stuff matters. And he has taken issue with a couple of key areas in the Catholic version of Christianity. And this got sort of a lot bigger than he might have intended. Uh, he was in, he was trying to reform the Catholic Church from within, and a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon for cynical or for it's the opposite of cynical, sincere, or for very sincere reasons. And there was a a new interpretation of Christianity that emerged. At first, it's Lutheranism, but then you have a whole bunch of different new interpretations of Christianity that follow Calvinism and baptism and Anabaptism. Puritanism. Puritanism. And all of this can be grouped together as Protestants, those who protest against Orthodox Christianity. This gets very political, and Europe gets divided up into Protestant and Catholic states or Protestant and Catholic regions Basically, you followed what your what your king, prince, regent, whatever did. So if you're in a Protestant area, it means that you are pretty sure that your interpretation of Christianity is correct and all those Catholics are wrong. Of course, the Catholics think the same thing. I know Nathan wants to say something, but I, I can't— I always want to say something. I, I can't help just bring in an anecdote that happened to me last summer— I go back to Germany for my aunt's funeral, and I'm in the small backwater town, and I'm sitting uh, with my mom, and we're speaking English, so the people around us don't know that we are also fluent in German, and so we were able to eavesdrop on their conversation. We didn't intend to, but beside us, there was a group of people, and they were talking about somebody who had recently died in town. And how in her will, she had left her house to a Protestant, like any Protestant was allowed to buy her house, but she had put in her will that no Catholic would be allowed to buy her house. And the people listening to this story were nodding their head in in, in, in agreement, in agreement with, with real vigor and a very zealous. And it was the, just for me, I felt like an anthropologist showing up in this totally different culture and and participating and watching these debates that have been going on in this region of Germany for 500 years. And it still matters, and they still care, and they still can't stand the other group. Oh, oh, humans. Now, what's interesting is that 
the witch trials are happening at basically the same time as this massive schism that's occurring in Europe between the Protestants and the Catholics. But both the Catholics and the Protestants burned witches. Aha. Uh-huh. Like, it wasn't a Catholic thing or a Protestant thing. That was, despite all of their differences, they, they seemed to agree that you still needed to set fire to witches, but they seemed to disagree who the witches were. Right, okay. The Protestant argues that, you know, probably these witches are Catholic, ultimately, and let us throw <laughs> by the Catholicism. And the Catholic will say, well, those, those Protestant witches. And Scott, of course, uh, in England in the 1580s, that explains why he took that shot at Catholicism. Okay. But more interestingly is that he's arguing that the the people who are being sentenced as witches are victims of ignorance and legal barbarism. Seems like a fairly, like, modern interpretation. Yeah. And there's also the possibility that they're led astray by their own, like, perhaps a mental illness or simply becoming old and senile. And I think that, again, speaks to one of the themes that I was hitting upon earlier, which is that belief in the late Middle ages and early modern times are is not as simplistic as a lot of times we represent that to ourselves. There are very sophisticated belief systems, including skepticism, materialisms, you know, rationalists, and even among, as I've said earlier, among the peasantry, you had a lot of very sophisticated but non certainly non-orthodox interpretations of Christianity. So I'm glad to hear that. Like, I'm glad to hear that there is this panoply of of interpretation and that it isn't all just sort of a fundamentalist, literalist reading of Christianity. No, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, according to Reginald Scott, any so-called magic could be explained as sleight-of-hand trickery, and the only people who would possibly fall for something like this or take it seriously would be children or fools or Catholics. <laughs> okay. So basically, where are we at this point? We've, we've decided that things were a lot more confusing and messy than has normally been portrayed in historical accounts in the media. That you can't say, oh, everybody followed this religion or everybody followed that religion. In addition to the, the massive schism of the Catholics and the Protestants, you also just had like individuals living in their, in their tiny little town sort of cut off from other groups and having you know, bizarre, strange beliefs that are a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that's just how everything was. So as this is happening, we do see this sort of top-down movement to try to get everybody in line. And that's sort of what the Inquisitions were in their horrifying way, and that's sort of what we see with the development of all of this witch literature. Now, the most influential, probably the most widely published and distributed bit of witch literature was the Amalius Maleficarum, the Hammer of the Witches. Now, because of the word Maleficarum, as our listeners have probably picked up, it's, it's Latin, that is specifically female. Uh, so a better translation would be Hammer of the Female Witches, because uh-huh. Maleficarum is a, is a female version of the word. So it's published in 1487 and written by a German Dominican named Heinrich Kramer. Now, we need to know a little bit about Kramer because I think his biography sort of informs the nature of this of this important work. Now, can you just remind us, what is the status? Why is this work important? Like, a lot of people will maybe have written something about witches. Why does this, uh, why are we talking about this 500 years later? This one we're talking about in more detail than the other ones because uh, this one was more widely printed. Uh, this one was more widely translated. 
And later on in, in future episodes, when we start talking about some other influential works, they were heavily influenced by the Hammer of the Witches. Okay. This is, as far as I've been able to tell from my research, of all of the, uh, of the literature that's been written on witches, this is the one that had the most widespread effect. And its message is basically, this is what a witch is, and here's what we should do about it. Exactly. So, as I said, written by a German Dominican named Heinrich Kramer, and he had been working as an inquisitor in the late 1470s in southern Germany. Now, in 1485, he was prosecuting a witch trial against 14 women, including a woman named Helena Schuberin. Schuberin? How do you spell it? S-C-H-E-U-B-E-R-I-N. Uh, Scheuberen. Helena Scheuberen, that sounds better. Who, according to the formal charges, had spat at Kramer as he walked down the street, and she had accused him of being obsessed with rich witchcraft. So, obviously... She's got to be a witch. She's got to be a witch. So, in turn, during the trial, Kramer interrogated Scheuberen about her sexual history, arguing that, Indeed, it is a general rule that all witches have been slaves from a young age to carnal lust and to various adulteries, just as experience teaches. Mm -hmm. The bishop in charge of the whole thing was a Bishop Golsler, and he wasn't attending this trial at this point, but he had a representative there. And apparently, according to the documents, the bishop's representative was getting increasingly uncomfortable with this line of questioning. In fact, they even brought in an advocate for the defense, which Kramer was horrified by, that the, the, this witch was, was getting a, a defense lawyer. But imagine, how terrible do you have to be in the 15th century during the, like, during the Inquisition that the church representatives are, are saying to you, Dude, you've got to calm down. Like, you are, you were going too far. Like, how bad do you have to be? <laughs> so the advocate... It for, got even worse, though, didn't it? it? It does. The advocate for the defense argued that Kramer, in his role as, in, as Inquisitor, had asked several leading questions and made a number of procedural errors. And again, when I was reading this, I was surprised because, again, this is the Inquisition. And we have this idea in our head that the Inquisition wouldn't have cared about things like leading questions and procedural errors. They were using things like torture. They were executing people. So it, it, it's astounding to me that you could still have some kind of a, official of the Inquisition saying, no, 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 we have to do this properly. Because from our perspective, the Inquisition was just completely out of control. Well, I, I often thought about the Inquisition very much as a certain foregone conclusion. Yeah. That it wasn't actually about establishing whether you were innocent or guilty it was merely a show trial to demonstrate that you were guilty and so it does appear quite shocking when they do go through their due diligence now it might almost sound at this point that we're almost being apologists for the inquisition <laughs> which i must stress we are not like the inquisition did torture and murder thousands of people like there is no excuse for it it was horrifying However, just because it was horrifying doesn't mean that we, we should just simply believe everything that people say about it. We should still exercise some kind of historical integrity. Well, there's the thing itself and the way it's represented. Mm -hmm. And the representation is not always that accurate. So we'll have to see. Yeah. And so, and again, I was surprised, but in this Inquisition where Kramer was interrogating uh, this 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 accused witch, 
the Inquisition actually decided, you know what? Kramer has been going too far. He has been overstepping his bounds. And all of the suspects were released to the dismay of Kramer. Now, Bishop Golser, who, of course, was again in charge of all of this, would later remark that Kramer had clearly demonstrated his foolishness and that he presumed much more that had not been proved. And we're fortunate the notes of these proceedings were made for Bishop Golser, and those notes are still available in the archives, which is how we know so much about this particular inquisition. Now, it's possible, in fact, I would say likely, that this very public humiliation inspired Kramer to create the book that he's most known for. Because not only did he lose this trial, he basically gets run out of town. Yeah. Uh, Kramer's book, as I said, will go on to be widely published and distributed throughout Europe, even after more recent and current books on witchcraft came out. So what was in it? What was in this book? It's broken up into three parts. Part one is an examination of the metaphysical nature of witchcraft in general. So very similar to other literature I've read, mostly using scripture from the Bible and the works of Aristotle, Aquinas, and Augustine, Kramer argues that the devil is real and can have an impact on what happens here on earth, and that therefore witches are real and they are in league with the devil. In addition, since historically witches have been consistently and severely condemned, they must exist. I don't consider any of this to be particularly good evidence, but at the time, it was considered pretty good evidence. Is this the first time the connection with the devil is made explicit? Because that was also something that Carlo Ginsberg kept noting, that a lot of times when witchcraft is mentioned, the association is not with evil. It might be with superstition, it might be with heterodox versions of Christianity, or something besides. But the the very obvious connection that we make with witchcraft and devilry is something that doesn't really need elaboration in the modern period. It's sort of often assumed, that connection. Is this where it begins? This isn't necessarily where it begins. It's not where it originates. But this is, I think, the moment it becomes canon. Right, okay. This is the moment where it's like, okay, we're, we've, we're decided this is how it is. We're going with this book. Hmm. This means that witches themselves have no supernatural power. They are just conduits for Satan to exercise his power. Uh, Up until the 13th century, as you were saying, belief in witchcraft was seen as superstition. And what that means is, and this is going to be complicated, so I'm going to try and explain it as, as clearly as possible. Up until the 13th century, if you believed in witchcraft, you were a heretic. Hmm. Because witchcraft is superstition. Hmm. But in this first section, Kramer argues that, no, to deny witchcraft's existence is heresy, since you can make orthodox beliefs work with a belief in witchcraft. Okay. So this takes a little bit of fancy footwork, because official Catholic doctrine was that God was all-powerful over everything, so how then did the witches possess evil power over God's kingdom? And the answer, as always, comes from the book of Job, in which God allows Satan to do terrible things to Job, for his own reasons. So it may sound strange to modern ears, but Kramer argues that witches have power through Satan, but only because God is allowing it. Mm -hmm. Which is strange, but there you have it. So why does God allow it? He sometimes uses evil in order to produce good or to test humans. And also, and you mentioned this earlier about free will, if God didn't let witches be witchy, then he'd be taking away their free will. That's right. That doesn't really explain why he allows innocent people to suffer from witchcraft, though. But Kramer doesn't really elaborate on that. Witches, and okay, so here is why I brought up some of Kramer's biography. Witches are mostly female, according to Kramer, because women are sort of terrible. I'll give you some, I'll give you a taste from Kramer. What else is woman but a foe to friendship 
an unescapable punishment, a necessary evil, a natural temptation, a desirable calamity, a domestic danger, a delectable detriment, an evil of nature painted with bare colors. Uh-huh. This guy's got problems. Yeah. Also, he says women are easier to trick since they're not as logical or as intelligent as men. Oh, dear. Okay. Also, <laughs> they have slippery... Real, real charmer, this guy. They have slippery tongues and so have a hard time not sharing their evil with their fellow women because, you know, women be chatting. Right. Okay. Also, <laughs> women are more sexual and wicked than men, as Kramer writes, as is made plain by her many carnal depravities. I see. Okay. So this... So he hates women. Yeah. And... This is not us having a modern interpretation. I think even by the standards of his day, this guy hates women. Right. And then he wrote it all up and replaced woman with witch. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, that's sort of what's happening here. So this book is not, just for clarity for those of us who haven't read it, it's not an attempt by the church... In a, in a sort of, I'm thinking of like Captain Ruppelt of kind of way. You know, it's kind of an attempt to understand the phenomenon on the ground. This is not this. No. This is more of a, a polemical work, a propagandistic work, a work trying to inflame people, scare them. And it reminds me actually of other books that are at the roots of moral panics. I was thinking of the... Um, Seduction of the Innocent, which is related to the comic book Scare. The book Michelle Remembers, uh, which is written by uh, Canadian psychiatrist Lauren Pazder, which is based on the discredited practice of finding recovered memories in a patient. And um, that was at the root then of the satanic panic in the 80s. The so, 1980s. The 1980s. Sorry, that's useful addition. Uh, <laughs> we get this panic again, right? This kind of witch scare stuff. But this work then, The Hammer of the Witches, sounds like the 15th century version of a book to start a moral panic. That, that's absolutely what it is. And okay. to give you an idea of how panicky people would get, I'm going to give you a little bit more evidence about this guy's... He had an agenda... And I'm not a Freudian, you're not a Freudian, but this next bit, we're going to get a bit Freudian. Okay. So, as, as we've established, Kramer may have had some issues with women. There is an entire chapter titled, Whether Witches May Work Some Prestidigitory Illusion So That the Male Organ Appears to Be Entirely Removed and Separate from the Body. Oh, wow. You want to put that in English for people? Um, she casts a spell that makes his uh, member... Detached from his body? Yes. A whole chapter on it. And by member, of course, I mean penis. Yes, you do mean that. <laughs> uh, so he asks the question, hey, can witches make men's penises fall off? So let me answer. Let me answer. <laughs> let, let me allow Kramer to answer. Because, yeah, we got a lot of nervous listeners now. Yeah. Oh, no. No, they can't. Okay. It's But. But. They can create an illusion that your penis has fallen off. Witches can. And it feels very real to the man who they are doing it to, and it's sometimes permanent. So you go through the rest of your life with the illusion. I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. I, I'm, I'm stunned. Yeah. So clearly, Kramer, from a Freudian perspective, like that's the most Freudian thing I've ever read. He is literally afraid that women have the power to take Castrate away his phallus. Yeah. yeah. 
It, yeah. It's castration anxiety. Yeah, and at that point, as much as we disagree with Freud, we're going to be like, ah, we're going to have to go with Freud on this one. <laughs> uh, Kramer also devotes an entire chapter to witch midwives, which I think is where this sort of midwife-witch association came right. in. Right. Because there is this belief that a lot of the witches who were killed were midwives. When you look at the statistics, there wasn't an unusual amount of midwives who were killed as witches. Yeah. But I think the the fact that there is this influential book in which he specifically calls out midwives is probably where that idea came from. So that's part one. Part two of this book is an examination of specific cases regarding witches and how they go about recruiting others into their covens. It's mostly word of mouth, sometimes by first using a spell to cause a problem in another woman's life and then suggesting to her that she use witchcraft to fix it. Aha! Kramer also notes that prosecutors of witches are almost never bewitched. And this is something that I thought almost immediately. If you are an, inquisi- an inquisitor, then why aren't you having spells like directed at you? Why isn't your penis floating off? Oh, well, isn't it because you work for God and therefore have a certain kind of holiness that that can't be corrupted so easily that's one of kramer's options either god protects the witch hunter because he is so happy with the witch hunter's work or satan prevents the witches from hurting the prosecutors so that the witch is sentenced quicker and ends up in hell faster aha this section also lists all the ways that witches can do harm Uh, they can prevent procreation they can steal milk from cows they can raise storms they can cause sickness in humans or livestock now of course And castration. And castration. And other than that last one with the floating invisible penis, all of these things are things that we could have natural explanations for. There could be reasons why your cow isn't giving milk. There could be reasons why you can't have a baby. There could be reasons why there's storms or sickness in humans or livestock. So part three is how to prosecute a witch. And this is where it really gets quite grim. As far as evidence from witnesses go, gossip and hearsay are fine, Unless that gossip comes from... A witch. Women. Right. Remember who's writing this thing. Right. <laughs> Unless it comes from women with ulterior motives to lie, as Kramer writes, women are easily provoked to hatred. Mm-hmm. Like, you might think I'm exaggerating about the degree to which this guy either hates or is terrified of women. Yeah. I couldn't possibly overstate how much no. he does. No, he's got a whole book about it. Yeah, it's you, an entire book. You can book. check it yourself. Yeah. Uh, There are a few methods of getting information from the accused. Uh, They're all pretty terrible. Torture is suggested as a method of obtaining evidence from the accused. He he doesn't sort of go into detail, but the kinds of torture, basically he's like, use your imagination. If your imagination doesn't work well enough, find somebody to help you who has a better imagination to come up with tortures. Okay. However, not red-hot irons. He specifically says you can't use red-hot irons. Oh, but other things are pretty much on the table. Right. Just sort of, at the very least, you have to strip them and shave their entire bodies. Okay. Now, you do this to make sure that they have not concealed on their person some kind of secret witch apparatus, and also to see if they have some sort of mark that would identify them as a witch. Now, you could imagine, what are the chances of getting through your life in this time period without a scar or a blemish or a mole or something. Oh, God, that's zero. Yeah, there's no no way, unless you spent your entire life bathing in milk. So if you look for one, you're going to find one. And also the process itself would be a kind of torture already. My high school science teacher wrote a book on late medieval torture devices, and I took a look through it. 
And man, those people were inventive. Yeah. They really like they really got into torturing. Like it's just thumb screws were big. Yeah. Like uh, finger crushers. Uh, being being tied and quartered. Yeah. I mean, pulled the, in different directions, wheel. stretched on the rack. Basically, getting... if we had spent more energy on things like, hey, how do we prevent cholera? Right. And less time uh, figuring oh, no, out no, 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 terrible no. They ways were the, to... They were the connected. Oh, the true. way you prevent cholera Torture is by people. killing all the witches in yeah. your community. Duh. Oh, boy. Sorry, just because I'm on a roll here. You know, like the thing about the rack, I don't know if you know this, but it seems pretty brutal just being stretched out on the rack. But the thing is, before you get put on the rack, you are beaten so that all your bones are broken ah. first, so that you are much more malleable to be stretched on the rack. See, now, we're going to spend more time on torture in, in future episodes. Okay, so, so I, won't, I won't get too excited. I won't get too excited about all right, all right. it. Also, lying was encouraged. Okay. To, to get information, lying was great. For example, you could tell the person that if they confessed, they wouldn't be killed. <laughs> and then after they confessed, you would use their confession of, as evidence of guilt and execute them. But here's the trick. The inquisitor who tells them that then steps back and another inquisitor comes in and sentences death. I so see. technically, you didn't, you didn't lie. lie because you didn't sentence her to death. Right. Very clever, Kramer. This is, I think, where we come to the conclusion because we have so much more to say. We're going to have to do more episodes on this. But I wanted to come to some conclusions about what we've done so far. We open by saying it's hard to understand people in the past, and I think we've seen lots of examples of that. We shouldn't make the mistake of assuming culture was driven only from like a top-down perspective. Despite the official stances against witchcraft, using magic and spells, and this is something that, that we've, we've discussed as well, they were both widespread in continental Europe during the age of the witch trials. Hmm. Like it was just a part of everyday life. Uh, I've got a quote in 1594, so this is at the height of the witch trials, Church officials visited the district of Nassau of Wiesbaden, 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 Hesse. It's in Hesse. Mm -hmm. uh, only to discover that basically everyone was casting spells all the time, and the church officials wrote that no man or woman begins, undertakes, does, or refrains from doing, desires, or hopes for anything without using some charm, spell, or incantation. Like it was just the the regular people were just all spells all the time. Yeah. Because culture is not some sort of top-down decision where the people at the top get to dictate what everyone already believes. Mm -hmm. Now, from a post-structuralist perspective, oh. the European witch trials are maybe a good example of something we call power knowledge. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is power, but knowledge doesn't have to be based on fact to have that effect. The inquisitors and witch hunters that were torturing and murdering people could draw on this elaborate system of knowledge that was created by all of these... Uh, people writing literature and things like the the Hammer of Witches. And so it, it looked like you had this great big knowledge base of what a witch was, even though none of it was related in any way to reality. Yeah. Knowledge doesn't have to be related to reality to have an effect, to create power, the power those inquisitors had to decide who was a witch and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. And every time they tortured someone into a confession, that system of knowledge grew. The whole thing was self-replicating since torture is terrible for getting the truth, but it's great for getting the answer that you want. This is why torture doesn't work. And since an important part of a witch trial was forcing the witch to turn over the names of other witches, there was this sort of horrible exponential progression to the whole thing. But this is where things are going to take a really weird turn. 
Okay. And I warned you about this. I yeah. said this was going to happen, but I didn't say why. All right. So how many people were killed as witches? Like, what's the highest number you've ever seen for somebody arguing there was this many people killed as witches? The highest number. The highest number, and I have to just put an asterisk here to say I, I don't agree with it, but the highest number is in the millions. I've seen nine million. Okay. And that's obviously incorrect. There was only like 100 million people in Europe at the time. That would literally be a decimation. That'd be one in every 10 person was killed as a witch. Yeah. That can't possibly be true. There's no evidence for it. That's ridiculous. So, and just to back up what Nathan is saying, there are scholars who have really taken issue with those numbers. So it's yeah. not just that Nathan and I are looking at history and are like, this does not feel yeah, right. Yeah, we're not counting there's one, right. there's two, there's another one. <laughs> it's more that we're representing a certain, our understanding of the discourse, which is that, no, that those numbers are irresponsible. They're not based on evidence. Yeah. Now, we're going to find a, a smaller number, but there's another thing I want to say, and I think you're going to agree with this. By saying that it wasn't like 9 million people, we're not saying that it was okay. Well, exactly. And I, I like always... one is too many. Exactly. If you torture and murder one person for being a witch, that's one person too many. And I struggle with this quite a bit because I often speak about, both in my class or on podcasts, about society. And there are things that happen to individuals which are absolutely devastating to those individuals, to their families, it's unexcusable, you can't justify it. And yet it doesn't rise to the level of a social tragedy or a social disaster, despite the fact that it's a personal one. So no matter how many people end up actually being killed, more than zero is too, is too many, more than zero people tortured for witchcraft is too many. And for each individual person, that's a, a huge disaster in their life. But is it a social phenomenon? Um, it, it's, you know, you do need to reach a certain threshold before you can say, oh, this is a thing that is happening in Europe, as opposed to a thing that's happening to this one person. Yeah. And I would argue, again, uh, after doing a, a review of the literature, 9 million is, is a ridiculous number. Uh, I, I've also seen 60,000. Okay. 60,000 people killed as witches. Now, we're talking about on in continental, continental Europe, Europe over about th a 300-year period. Yep. So this is to say in, in what, just a rough scattering, uh, Spain, Portugal, Italy, France, Germany... Does England count as, as... England is not part of Europe anymore, so it never was part of Europe. Right. <laughs> okay. So, again, not to not to dismiss it or relativize it, but just to put it in context, that's, that would be 60,000 over 300 years and a number of different countries. Yeah. And, of course, 60,000 people too many. And I still think that number is probably too high. Okay. The number that I have come to is a, probably, like, this is a very conservative estimate. It could be higher than this. Okay. But this is probably the lowest it was. Okay. 20,000 human beings murdered for being witches. So could we say, just safely, there is a range that we think we're comfortable with somewhere between twenty and 60,000 people over 300 years? Yep. Okay. Now, that's clearly a lot less than 9 million. That but, is a lot less than 9 million. That but is also, true. if you imagine somebody tortured and burned as a witch, and then you imagine it 20,000 times, that is no small thing. That is also true. And, and now, um, again, not to sound like 
I'm in any way trying to diminish the suffering of any of these people. But what I find problematic with numbers like this is that I don't like it unless I have more numbers to contextualize it with. Like, for example, how many people were murdered for or, or uh, executed um, at the end of a trial for non-witchcraft things? You know, well, like, that would be a number I would like to know. How many people died a violent death but, but weren't killed as witches? Um, and maybe not even killed by some kind of judicial outfit, but just, you know, it might be a very violent time, the likelihood of you going to war or something terrible happening to you going from one town to another. So just generally, and I find this all the time with medical statistics too, like you sit on the subway and it's like, one in 20,000 people are going to get stomach cancer. Okay, is that a lot? Like, I don't know. Like, I would need to know, like, well, how many people are going to get other kinds of cancer and how many people are going to get anyway. So the one thing I have with those kinds of numbers is I don't like them unless I get other numbers to contextualize them with. I think what you're saying is, obviously, murdering 20,000 people for being witches is terrible. But what were the chances, like, is, is this a thing that at the time, if you were alive, is this a thing you would be scared of or would it be a fairly rare thing to happen to you? Yeah, that, that's, that would be useful to know. It sort of depends on where you are. Right. Because okay. in Italy that, that makes sense. and yeah. Spain and Portugal, very few... I mean, the, the Inquisition was really kicking in, but the Inquisition didn't seem that interested in killing witches. Right. And that's certainly Carlo Ginzburg's sense in looking at the inquisitorial records from those people, uh, from those places, is often these witch trials are just halted in the middle of things because they just don't care enough to, to see it out. Yeah. Now, if you're in France, or what's now considered France, there's a, a greater chance. You know where you have the greatest chance of being killed as a witch? England. No. The Germany. area that we now call Germany. Yeah, okay. And this is where things, for me, took a really strange and disturbing turn. Okay. Because uh, I, was, I was wondering, like, why is that? What was it about Germany that there were so many more witches killed there than anywhere else? Mm. And then I, I was wondering, why is it that we have such great records about the witches that were killed in Germany okay. compared to anywhere else. Is it, does, does the German love of bureaucracy and paperwork like go back that far? I, I didn't think so. <laughs> Precedes the Roman Empire as far as I know. Now, here's the answer. <laughs> and this answer is going to springboard us off into another podcast. All right, all right. So I think you and I would agree that these at least 20,000 people were murdered as scapegoats. Yes. They were, they were scapegoats for the, the ills of a society, for the, the dangers of living in a chaotic world in which bad things happen all the time and we want someone to blame. And these 20,000 people were victims of being murdered for being scapegoats. Okay. Yep. Well, as it turns out, they were double victimized. Oh. Because those people were murdered for being scapegoats. And then later on, their stories would be resurrected and they would become the victims of something else. They would become the victims of becoming part of the justification for fascism and Nazism. Oh, my God. Because do you know who was absolutely fascinated with digging up old witch trial records? No. Himmler. No. Yes. That actually tracks totally. Yeah. But in order to understand why that was the case, we're going to have to have an entire different and I think probably unsettling and disturbing episode. All right. So, <laughs> so there you go. So, you're, okay. so you are welcome. Y you are welcome. Is our next episode on Salem? 
know our next episodes on England. Okay. So then England, Salem. then Salem, and then we'll circle around to Himmler. Yeah. Fun times. Oh, boy.